All right, take your Bibles this morning and let's go to Genesis chapter number one. And so we are today beginning a new series. And so sometime I'm not one of those pastors that's good at doing one series after another. Uh, but every now and then the Lord just really puts a heavy burden um, and such is the case here. And so I'm going to take just a moment uh, today to introduce kind of the series and then uh, of course this pivotal first message to get the foundation laid for the series and it begins with God and everything is the foundation of all that is. Uh, and so there's no better place to start. But the title of, uh, of the series is just simply Beginnings. And so when I look at this and God began to work in my heart about this particular line of thinking and series of messages through Genesis, uh, I don't want it to be and did not want it to be just a standard survey of the book of Genesis, and I don't think that it will be, uh, but rather more base underlying principles, things that we see throughout the scripture and certainly throughout eternity from creation forward. Uh, the bedrock principles that govern and direct and guide our lives. And so uh, we're going to today look at the beginning of God displayed. God has no beginning. We'll touch more on that in a minute. Uh, but he did not begin to display himself to us until creation. And so uh, when he put those things in place, the following week, we're going to look at the beginning of man. Uh, and so I'm going to get into too many details of all of that. Uh, all five of these sermons are already well in progress, and so uh, they're, they're not fully developed, but they are well developed, and so I've got a lot of my heart. I'm trying to confine myself to one message this morning, uh, and so, but we're going to look at man. The next week, we have a visiting evangelist. We have a young man that's going to be coming. He traveled uh, as one of the team captains of one of the war teams a few years ago. He's launched out following the Lord's leading into evangelism, and he'll be preaching for us on the 17th on Sunday morning and Sunday night. Uh, his name is Caleb Reed. Pray for him. I'm sure that he'll be a blessing. Uh, and certainly we want to be a blessing and encouragement to him. It's difficult for young evangelists to follow the Lord by faith and to get started and established. Uh, and so we want to be a blessing to him there. Uh, then we'll come back and we'll look at the beginning of sin. Uh, then we'll follow that with the beginning of grace uh, and then the beginning of faith. And so God is... Uh, and he displayed himself to us. He created us for a purpose. We ruined that by sin. God, in response to our sin, gives us salvation through grace, uh, which we must accept and access by faith. And so we see all of these principles underlying through the book of Genesis. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at those things over the next several weeks. Now, before I start with the text this morning, there's an important figure of speech that's used in Genesis almost a hundred times that you see exclusively throughout the entirety of the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, you see it heavily in Luke chapter 15. You see it heavily in Genesis chapter 22. But you see it everywhere. I, I Honestly, this is something new that I learned. I'm, I'm not much of an English uh, a student. I've always struggled with understanding language and all of that type of thing. My uh, wife devotes a, a, a great deal of energy to trying to help me to correct my bad English at times because I just don't often, often say things the way they should be said. Uh, and so I, I learned something new this week. There's a figure of speech that's called a polysyneton. And so I had never heard of that. Some of you that are more versed in English probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, but a polysyneton is just the, the excessive use of conjunctions for the purpose of slowing down 
the narrative for emphasis and to display its power. Uh, you see writers like Ernest Hemingway, uh, writers like Charles Dickens, uh, writers like William Shakespeare used it, used it in abundance in their writing. And when you look and you follow those that understand those things in, the, in, the, in our Bible, it is used many times. As I've said, and we're going to read Genesis 1 here uh, as we get started, listen to how many times the word and appears, almost 100 times. So in Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear and it was so. And God called the dry land earth and gathering together of the waters called he seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and morning were the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. And fowl that they may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales. And every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind. And every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth after his kind 
and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of the earth, and every tree in, the which, in which is the fruit of the tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw that, that everything that, God had, that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. As we begin this this morning, simply beginnings, the beginning of God displayed. Father, thank you for the time to come together this morning to open your word. May we in turn open our hearts. May you guide and direct our thoughts. Lord, help me to deliver clearly what you've given. Lord, may we be challenged, convicted, and encouraged this morning. In Jesus' name, and amen. So as we look here this morning, there is no way that we could go through this entire chapter and exhaustively cover much of what it means. Most of the time when we get into a study of beginnings or Genesis, the emphasis is on the creative act and the works and we break all that down. And I may touch on some of those things at some level. I'm sure that I will, but I don't want to get bogged down too much with uh, every little detail because the point here is not a defense of creation versus evolution, though certainly it does that. The point is, this is God. This is God displayed. God is eternal. He has no beginning. He'll have no end. But before creation, there was nothing to behold God. There was no I, there was no person, there was no, well, pastor, how does that, I, how does, I, I can't even comprehend what that would even begin to look like exactly. There are things that are, be, uh, that God is so vast and so big that our little small brain cannot even begin to fathom God. God does not begin the book of Genesis by explaining in detail who he is and why we should reverence him. He simply states that he is. There is the assumption in the scripture that God is and that God is all that he says that he is and will be. He is eternal. Paul references this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. In verse 17, when he says, Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So when we look this morning and we see in the beginning, God. That is such a profound and powerful statement. 
When you look at the earth, when you look at the heavens, when you look at the complexity of life, that every atom, every molecule uh, is in its place, every DNA structure is precise to the kind uh, by which God created it. Uh, and so when we look at all of those types of things, God clearly in his awesome power is on full display. So we speak this morning not of God's beginning, for he has none, but we speak of the beginning of his self-revelation to mankind as the Holy Spirit worked in the heart of Moses to write uh, and to record the beginnings of all that is here in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The moment that he rose up and displayed himself to all that is and to all that would be. And so we look this morning at God uh, in such a course. Uh, years ago, there was a young reporter by the name of Harold Fortescue uh, who uh, was sent out on his very first assignment to cover a social uh, gathering within the city that he was working in. Uh, he went out wanting to do a great job and he conducted interviews of people that attended the event and he uh, recorded uh, all kinds of information and observations of what he saw. He sat down at the typewriter uh, and so those of us that are over 40 understand that what that is and the under 40 probably need a picture. Uh, and so, but a typewriter uh, and so he uh, sits down and he cranks out uh, his report and his article for the newspaper and it is a full 24 pages in length. He takes it to his editor. He hands it. The editor won't even take it out of his hand. He just looks at it, says, hmm, go cut it in half. The young reporter, disheartened, hangs his head and walks out without argument, goes back through all of his notes meticulously and redu reduces down by half. He goes back again. Again, swelled, his heart swelled with pride that he's got a great article to submit uh, for his first assignment, the editor once again looks up, looks at it, says, hmm, cut it in half again. And he goes back dejected. He comes back again. Now he's down to just a few pages. The editor says, cut it in half again. He comes back with about a page and a half to three and uh, the editor looks and he says, now reduce it to one page. The young man finally pushes back and he says, he's obliterated my work of excellence, my literary masterpiece. And editor, don't you understand that people need to understand? He said, son, I think you've misunderstood and overlooked the fact that God, the creator of all that is, needed only 10 words to summarize his work. In the beginning... God created the heaven Amen. and the earth. It doesn't take a lot of verbiage to display a lot of power. A single atom can reduce a city to ash in a moment. When we look and we understand what God has done and how God words things here, God is very deliberate as the Holy Spirit inspires Moses to write these words. He is both concise and precise in his writing. When we look here at the beginning, he says, in the beginning, God. The word used for God here is the name Elohim. The name Elohim is used 2,500 times nearly in the Old Testament. It is not always attributed to God. Sometimes it's attributed to an angel or to uh, an, another 
But the vast majority of the time, uh, this name is attributed to uh, God. The reason it's significant in this passage in particular is that the word El Elohim is a compound word. The word El meaning uh, the strong one and the word Allah meaning to swear or to bind oneself by an oath. So God from his opening statement says, I am the one with power and I am the one that by oath is bound to see this creation through to its intended end. He stands up and he proclaims from the opening words of the entirety of the word of God that I am God and I am faithful. And there's something that we need to understand this morning is that God is faithful. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. He is not to be doubted. He can be depended upon. It's also interesting in this fact. The name Elohim is a plural name understood in a singular sense. Meaning that from the very opening expression of who God is, he reveals to us that he is a triune God. From the opening statement, we see God presenting himself as three in one. He is a plural God understood in a singular sense. Three distinct persons in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, but one entity as God. And so as God lays out his truth and God lays out what he's wanting us to know, he says, in the beginning, God, that faithful one, that, uh, that three-in-one God created. The word created here is the word bara. There are multiple words in the Old Testament Hebrew that are translated for create. Creating, by definition, uh, is, means to shape or to form or to create uh, spontaneously. So without any, uh, any other act or any other properties. It's not, uh, in this case, uh, it could mean any of these things. So for example, if someone were to take a hunk of wood uh, and to carve out a sculpture from that, uh, or a piece of marble and to carve a sculpture of that, uh, or to take some clay and to form a pot of that, uh, you could correctly translate bara, uh, meaning that they shaped it and they formed it. However, in the Bible, the word bara by the King James translators was reserved exclusively for the act and the creative acts of God. It's used about 50 times uh, or over 50 times in the Old Testament. It is used for none other than the creative act of God. And they wanted to convey the idea that this is to create from nothing. And when we look and we understand how it was used, it's revealed in Scripture and it's reserved by the translators to reveal to us the distinctive work of God that men can make things and form things, but only God can create from nothing. Amen. Moses, recorded by inspiration and by revelation, not by according to the knowledge of the men of his day. 
You have to understand as Moses wrote and Moses was educated with all of the learning of the Egyptians. He was not an ignorant man. He was a well-educated, well-prepared man. He had much invested into his education. But you have to understand that in their day, whenever they went out and they looked in the sky, the greatest object in the sky was not the sun, but the moon. The moon appears in the sky much larger. And if you look back at Egyptian uh, religion, you understand that they believe uh, that earth, the earth came from one egg and that one egg hatched out four uh, distinct other uh, creatures that were the sons of God or that one egg and they all had different powers and entities and one of them was the sun god and one, uh, and they had all of their distinct uh, things. That was the scientific knowledge of Moses' era. If he were writing according to the knowledge of man, we would have had volumes written about all of these types of things. He was not writing according to knowledge and the knowledge of his day. He was writing uh, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. You have to understand that God doesn't see things the way that we do. If we were to look at the creative work and to begin to describe it and to break it down uh, and by the kinds and by the days and by all of and there's all kinds of theories and I'm going to try not to get bogged down getting into all of that water because it's important but it's just not the point of this particular sermon. When we look and we understand uh, what God stated here through Moses, that Moses' writing uh, as God inspired him, that, that what, what man would take libraries to express about the stars and the sun and the moon and this and that. When you talk about just the stars, what we would use volumes to describe, God gave five words. If you'll notice in Verse number 16, as he's describing, and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. The greater light and their estimation was the moon and they described the coolness of the moon uh, by it just being believed, they believed it to be farther away from the earth than the sun was. But it was greater because it was larger. That's the, the estimation of man. But we know that the moon could be engulfed by our sun some six million times. The sun is so much larger than the moon. And so knowledge changes. But notice what he says about the stars here. Two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Five words to describe the making of billions of stars. You know how much time he devoted to describing the tabernacle's construction and importance? Some 50 chapters. God's letting us know from Genesis 1 that the redemption of man is far more important to me than the magnificence of creation. This, this Genesis in chapter 1 is divided primarily into two sections. Verses 2 through 13 establish life on the earth. You see God's creative work. He's establishing life. And then in chapter in verses 14 through 31, he's establishing law upon the earth. So from the very beginning, we see God expressing that he is creating heaven and earth. And notice verse 2, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. 
Now there are some that believe that there's an enormous gap between verse 1 and verse 2. It's called the gap theory. I'm aware of it. I understand what it means. I know what they erroneously believe. Uh, but the simple fact of the matter is, is that God doesn't need us to rewrite the scripture, to interpret it, to account for what man wants it to say, or man's uh, ideas and theories. Just believe what God said. And when we look here and he says here that it's without form and void, it simply means that God created it, but he's not yet finished his work. He's not done setting it in order. And he creates. He speaks and it is. And as he speaks and it is, notice that it says, and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. The word spirit here. Uh, like the New Testament word means breathed. We talk about the inspiration, the inspiring work of the Holy Spirit, meaning literally that God breathed. And the word here, spirit, means wind. By resemblance in its definition, breath. And that is, has a lot of application as to what kind of breath was it. Was it angry? Was it happy? Was it... Uh, was it cheerful? Was it condescending? Was it rebuking? Uh, but it's breath. And then he tells us that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The word moved here means to relax or to bring to calm and to hover. So get the picture. God gets up off of his throne and says, Earth come together. And in its darkness and its disorder and its lifelessness, the Spirit of God comes down and hovers over the ungoverned and lawless raging seas and brings them to calm and begins to go to work. And as he goes to work, he begins to create. He creates everything after its kind. If there's a principle of creation uh, that we need to understand, it's simply that everything reproduces after its kind. You can crossbreed two dogs and or multiple species of dogs and come up with a new variety of dog, but you can't come up with a cat. Yeah. After his kind. Evolution in the sense of mutations and new species of the same kind take place. They're literal. They can be observed. They can be manipulated. But you can never change from one kind to another. And when we look and we understand God's working here, the Holy Spirit now goes to work uh, creating all that is from the life in the sea and all of that to bringing it into order. And we're going to look at those things uh, here this morning. And we're going to start off by looking at the display of God's power. <coughs> the display of God's power. Notice in verse number three, and God said, let there be light and there was light. Understand this principle. And God said, and there was. That's all I need to know about this. If God says it, it happens. If God says it, it can be trusted. Let there be, and there was. Now, in this case, he's talking about light. An interesting thing about light, light 
uh, is known to travel at 186,273 miles per second. That rate remains constant no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the environment, it's constant within the atmosphere, it's constant out of the atmosphere. If you take two objects in interstellar space and you set them moving together at a rate of speed, it's constant. If you set them close together, moving away from one another, it's constant, it never changes. That's what we know about light. But you know what's interesting? We know what the elements are as far as we know what water is. It's H2O, right? We understand that it's that it, what well, it's compounds that make it up. No one knows what light is. We know what light does, but we have no idea what light is. And when you look and you stop and consider how powerful it is that God would say, "Let there be light." And the other thing that we see, just looking in the greater context of all of humanity, that when God created. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. From the very beginning of creation, God is saying to us, I know that you're going to sin, and that your life is going to devolve into chaos, and that you are going to live in darkness without the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're going to go out, you're going to be born in sin because of Adam's sin, and you are going to grow up in darkness without Christ. Let there be light. Let Jesus come on the scene. As he creates, he tells us, I know that you're going to fail at why I'm creating you, but I'm also letting you know from the very opening verses, from the very opening words that I speak, that I am going to have a plan and a path for your redemption. You are without form, you are in darkness, you are in chaos, you are in disarray, and I'm sending the light. Amen. God looks and he says that there is the display of his power and we see that that power is instantaneous as he creates light and says, let there be light, displaying to us that he has power over darkness. Darkness means a lot of things to a lot of people in a lot of places. Darkness is associated with evil. Darkness is associated with fear. Darkness is associated with everything that we generally hold to be bad or corrupt or evil. We use the word darkness to describe all of those things. And God is saying, I am here to dispel darkness. It does not have power over me. I stated that we know what light does, not what light is. What light does, by definition, is the destruction of darkness. Darkness is formed by the absence of light. But light is the eradication of darkness. And what God sets out from the very beginning is that you don't have to fear the darkness because I have power over the darkness. Amen. He comes down in the earth when it's without form and void. And when darkness was over the face of the deep and he simply says as he hovers there bringing calm, let there be light. And there was light. Second, we see that he begins to bring into control the disorder of things. In verses 6 through 8, we see him referencing here, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. So he makes the firmament. Uh, and the evening and the morning were the second day. So now he's, he's dividing. And we see then in verses 9 and following, he creates the land. 
He sets some things in order. And so uh, he has power over disorder. What do we say? What I'm saying is this, that we see in these verses, 6 through 8 in particular, that he begins to take this chaos and now separate it. He separates the water from the water. Now, there are a couple of different theories. One prominent theory is that there was a canopy above the earth up until the flood. I personally believe that it has a lot of validity, but many that are good people don't. They believe it just simply means the water lifted up in the atmosphere. And so none of that really matters. There's certainly on display today water above us. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But God comes and he calms the waters and he sets and brings the, lifts the continent out. And whether you believe the continents were risen out as they are now or whether they were one until the flood and at the flood God separated them, uh, again, is not relevant to the message. And it's honestly, in light of eternity, it's unimportant. It's interesting, but it doesn't matter. God created it. If God wanted to separate it, he could separate it. Uh, and so when we look and, uh, and understand what he's saying is that I'm bringing order. Do you understand now that from this time that God creates and he brings out the continents and he is going to create the sun and the moon and the stars, that what he's going to do is he's going to set in order everything that is necessary for life. Since the creation of the moon and the sun and the stars, and since the separation of the sea from the land and the firmament above, there have been, like clockwork worldwide, two high tides and two low tides every day. Since creation, there's order. God's laws come into effect. God has power over disorder. He separates the sea uh, from the air and from the land. We talk about this water vapor just for a moment because I think that it kind of gives a small glimpse into the kind of power uh, that is necessary for us to exist and that only God could display such power. It's not a mere accident. It certainly didn't come from some big bang in space a billion years ago. Uh, it requires the power of God. Do you realize this morning, and this is a scientific fact, uh, some of its estimates as far as specific numbers, but the fact that it is, the processes in place is not disputable. That there are continually suspended above the earth, there is an estimated 54 trillion 460 billion tons of water vapor. Water weighs 773 times more than the air. How does it stay aloft? How does something that's heavier than air stay suspended in the air? Amen. Annual precipitation worldwide averages 186,000 cubic miles. That's enough to cover the earth to a depth of three feet annually. The perfect system of lifting water from the surface of the earth into the atmosphere so that the, the, the air, in the air in the atmosphere is cleansed so that we can sustain life and so that the earth can be watered. God knows exactly what was necessary for life. The amount of energy that is required from the sun to create that kind of evaporation and the wind conditions in the atmosphere to release it in the form of rain and snow and sleet is nothing short of the miraculous power of a loving and supreme God that is completely and fully in control of everything that is, including your life and mine. Amen. 
that God is the, has power over disorder. We see then in verses 11 through 13 that he has power over deadness. We are dead in our sins until Jesus. He has power over deadness. In verses 11 through 13, and the, God said, let the earth bring forth grass and herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. God begins to display that now that there is order, there can be life. God brings forth that life and we see that display of God's power, but God is not content here to just say, look at my power. He says, I want you to begin to understand who I am. We see secondly this morning, the display of God's person. And what we see is that God is perfection. Amen. Nothing is overlooked. One commentator that I read cited a book that was written by an, a scientist named Stoner uh, who was published in the 1950s, it was either 1948 or 58. And he was giving a description of, the, of, of how incredible it was that Moses wrote what he wrote in Genesis 1 at, at 1800 plus years after the fact and with the knowledge that he had and got everything exactly right. Every sequence of creation happened in the exact order that was necessary for life to be sustained. If what is recorded for us in Genesis 1 was out of order, it would not have worked. It had to happen in the order that the Holy Spirit of God inspired Moses to write it down for us in. The message is clear. God overlooked nothing. Nothing caught him off guard. He was not surprised. It was part of the plan. God is perfection. When we look this morning and want to understand or begin to understand God, we understand this, that our God is powerful and our God is perfect. Amen. Not only is he perfect, but secondly, we see that he's passionate. Nothing was left undone. From the smallest atom and the smallest molecule to Mount Everest, to the, the sun, the moon, and the stars, to all of the galaxies in the universe, all of it is doing exactly what's necessary for it, God's plan to be fulfilled. He's passionate and he's passionate about you. He's passionate enough about us that in our deadness and in our darkness and our sin that he sent Jesus Christ to come to this earth and to live a perfect sinless life to display uh, his love for us and to pay uh, for the debt of our sin. It is the display of his person. I am perfect and I am passionate. And then thirdly, we see that he is personal. He is a personal God. We won't get much into this until uh, we get into man, but when he creates Adam, he does not speak him, he forms him. He comes down to him and he breathes into him the breath of life and man becomes a living soul. The creative work of human life is different from the creative work of everything else that God did. It is sacred and it is special because it's personal. Nothing was delegated. God did not say to the angels, go and create man. He did not say, go and form the body and I'll be down shortly to breathe into the, to the breath of life. He didn't have a work crew. He didn't uh, farm anything out. He didn't upset the order. He simply 
did everything personally because you're that important to him. Because we're that special to him. And God in Genesis 1 displays his power certainly, but he also displays his person in perfection, passionate, in love with his creation, in love with what uh, he wants man to do and to be. And he's personal. He's right here with us at every moment. Thirdly, this morning, consider not only the display of God's power and the display of God's person, but God displays for us his plan. Three parts about the plan of God that's outlined here is this. Number one, God's plan is exact. God lays out for us from the very opening chapters of the word of God what his expectations are and what the outcomes will be if we don't manage them. There was no wonder in Adam's mind when he chose to take the fruit from Eve and to eat it what the consequence was going to be. God made it very clear, this is my expectation. If you live up and fulfill my expectation, this will be the outcome. And if you fail, this will be the outcome. God has a plan that is exact. My life's in trouble this morning, what do I need to do? Get back in touch with God's exact plan. Amen. Come to understand what God has put in place, what orders and laws God has established that govern the universe and the earth. Uh, listen, the law of sowing and reaping, uh, all of those things that come into play, not just out in nature, but in our everyday lives. God's plan is exact. Not only that, I would say this morning that God's plan is eternal. He did not create this and he did not create your soul to have an end. Our existence, the existence of the angels is not eternal in the same fashion that God is eternal. God has no beginning or end. The soul of man, the existence of the angels, the, Satan and the demons, they have a beginning but no end. Certainly this flesh has an end. It's quickly approaching. But this soul has no end. Your soul is going to exist according to the plan of God, either for, for eternity, either in a lake of fire or in his presence, worshiping him. That's his plan. It was established in eternity and it was explained in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. His plan is eternal. The last thing I would say about his plan is that his plan is exhaustive. No contingency is unaccounted for. Do you understand this morning that when God worked and that God, uh, God brought these things to life uh, and when God created us, that it took God speaking to create, but it took God suffering to redeem. When you talk about his display and his power and his perfection and his passion, his love and what he would do and to what extremes he would go to bring it to an end, we look and we see that God uh, was so powerful that he created everything by simply speaking and coming and working and interacting and doing what was necessary to bring it to perfection, knowing that man would spoil it with sin knowing that all of that power wasn't enough for redemption. That the creative power is immense and as awesome as it is, pales in comparison to the fact that a God 
that has such power could create, but in order to redeem, had to suffer. He loves you Amen. enough to suffer. He could have just simply wiped the earth clean. That's what some believe whenever it says that the earth was without form and void. They believe that, uh, that God created and there was, uh, then he destroyed the Satan and the angels and, and the demons and, uh, and, and the earth because of what their fall, because of the fall of Satan. Listen, he says at the end of chapter 1 that he looked at everything and it was very good. The fall of Satan could not possibly have happened prior to the, to the end of Genesis creative work because otherwise God would not have been able to say that this is very good. When did he fall? We don't know. Sometime between God's creation and placing Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to the fall of man. Well, when was that? We have no idea. We can look and kind of calculate according to what the scripture tells us in approximate age, uh, whenever uh, the first children were born. But at any point during that, the fall could have happened. We don't know how long before or after. And quite honestly, it's not worth arguing about. It's just realizing that God has left no stone unturned. Now, why is this so important, Pastor? Why is it so important that I see God's power and his person and his plan? Why is it so important that I agree with Genesis chapter 1? Can't we, uh, there are a lot of Christians that have, have embraced theistic evolution. In other words, they believe uh, that, that God allowed, created the basics of life and then allowed things to evolve. And that explains what the world says. There's theories for everything that is and everything that you want it to say. Why is it important that I just believe that it happened the way that God said that it would happen? And by the way, when he says replenish the earth, the old, that's just an old English word that means to fill. It doesn't mean refill. In our common vernacular, we think of it as refill. But if you look back at the old English that this was written in, it doesn't mean that. It means to fill. Like an initial filling. That's a side note. When we come back to why it's so important, is simply this. John Phillips in his commentary on Genesis put it this way. If the Holy Spirit cannot be trusted when he tells of creation, how can he be trusted when he tells of salvation? If what he says about the earth in Genesis 1 can be questioned, what he says about heaven in Revelation 22 can be questioned. If the Holy Spirit cannot be trusted in Genesis 1, how can he be trusted in John 3.16? I believe him or I don't. Pastor, this is a lot. Well, if you ask me, it takes a whole lot more faith that we're here because a couple of rocks collided in space billions of years ago than it does to, it takes a lot more faith to believe that than to believe that God and his infinite power and wisdom created. But either way, it's a matter of faith. What do we believe by faith? If I can't see it, if I can't replicate it, if I can't watch it happen, I have to trust somebody. Will I trust the logic of man? By the way, it's understood in the scientific community that any new fact that comes out has a 50% shelf life or a five-year shelf life. 
that in five years from now, 50% of everything that's accepted as fact will either be uh, still true or have been disproven and replaced by a new theory. Not so with God. What God said in Genesis 1, 1 is still true and will still be true whenever the white throne takes place and will still be true when we've been worshiping, around, been worshiping him around his throne for billions of years. Do I believe him? Have I accepted him? Do I understand that this God that has such power, this God that created me, this God that warned me is also a God who's personal, a God who is loving, a God who, yes, has anger and wrath at sin, but a God who also has made a, put forth a plan and paid the price to pay for our redemption. There is a God who is powerful, there is a God who is personal, and there is a God who has a plan for you. Where are you in that plan? Are you still without form and void in darkness waiting for light? in the person of Jesus Christ to reveal the darkness so that you can put your faith and trust in him, find forgiveness for your sin and be born again and enjoy the new life that he suffered to provide for you? Are you a Christian this morning that's wondering if God loves you? He's personal. He loves you. He cares about you. He created you. You are the personal touch of a powerful God. And that God did not create you at random. He created you with a plan. He has a plan for earth. He has a plan for Israel. He has a plan for all of humanity. He has a plan to fix the plan that we messed up. And he has a plan to return. Where am I in that plan? Part of that plan is that we be close to him, that we walk with him, that we serve him, that we be in fellowship with him. And there's no better place to be while we're on this earth than in the middle of the plan that God handcrafted for you because he personally loves you and he has the power to make everything happen in your life that needs to happen for you to fulfill that plan. Will you embrace him this morning?